0: said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of
1: the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Mike Browning. Thank you, everybody. It's a a delight to be able to minister today to your church um, family. Uh, the reading, uh, I'm not going to read the reading except for a few couple of paragraphs but we are going to do quite a Bible study today folks so if you've got your Bibles, well you need your Bibles so if you could have them handy please. Um, we're going to have to go through quite some um, some sections of scripture today. Um, you know it's an interesting thing. Um, when I was a young man I was in Papua New Guinea. I was 21 looking at what life would bring me, and it was 1969 and I began to study the Bible with the Seventh-day Adventist missionaries just up the, lived up the road from me, and I was just amazed. Now, I'd been raised in the Anglican Church, and while it gave me a basic faith in Jesus uh, and, under, you know, prayer was important to me even as a young fellow, yet we were very sceptical about the Bible. And I never believed you could trust the Bible. And then here am I studying the Bible with these Seventh-day Adventist people, and, and lo and behold, it made sense. And not only that, but you could study the Bible prophecies, and they were unerring in their accuracy and their fulfilment. And I tell you what, folks, it was a great eye-opener to me. And there's nothing like fulfilled prophecy Um, God stakes his claim and his authority on the fact that what he says is going to happen does happen. And uh, so we're looking at some very important prophecies which are designed to not only strengthen our faith now but give us confidence as we face a fairly turbulent future. And by the way, as Pastor Jeff has just been saying, we are in amazing times, aren't we? It's just incredible. So. Folks, could you take your reading? We are going to read the first couple of chapters, and then I'm just going to get you to take your Bibles out and we're going to go through those. So if you've got your reading there, people, um, can we go to paragraph one? I do want to just give us this couple of paragraphs to get our background. This is what it says In every age, God has given his people a special mission. And that's what we're really about in our reading today. What is our mission? So that's the question. What is our mission? They're going to deal with that. And while the specifics of how to carry out that mission may vary, the ultimate goal is always the same, to bring people into a saving relationship with God that will last for eternity. So that's our goal. Then um, the reading goes on to talk to introduce Daniel. More than 2,500 years ago, God called a young man to an important mission lasting not only through his lifetime, but down through the ages to our time, and that's Daniel. Third paragraph, if you're reading, those prophecies, particularly the ones regarding the last days, are identified in Revelation 10 as a little book. We've got to talk about that today. This little book, sealed until the time of the end. John is told, go take the little book which is open, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So we're going to deal with that today, and I think it's very important. So, folks, please take out your Bibles to Daniel, to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10, and we're going to do a lot of comparisons between Daniel and Revelation here today. So Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 5. Now, an angel comes to Daniel, and he records it here in chapter 10, verse 5. And this angel gives him a message which lasts for several chapters. It's a very long message. Um, We're not going to read it all. We're going to read verse 5 and 6, though. So it's Daniel 10, 5 and 6. Daniel 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked. So this is a new vision. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of ufas. Now, this is a striking being that he sees. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour. This is a remarkable picture. And the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, a multitude like a dull roar. A multitude makes that. So his voice was a roar, and it sounds impressive to me. And he goes on, and the message he gives goes through Chapter 10, Chapter 11, and we're going to settle on chapter 12, verse 4, and the last few sentences of his minute, his message to, to Daniel. So chapter 12, verse 4, and he says, finally, after giving that long message, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now notice the timing, folks, till the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased about this book that's to be sealed up, the book of Daniel, very specifically. Um, Seal the book until the time of the end. That's really interesting. Um, This this sealing of the book of Daniel is a very important event, and you'll notice in the same chapter 12 and verse 9, he actually says it again, same angel. He said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Um, so there are two important things here: the books of Daniel is to be sealed for that period of time, and it's to be sealed until the time of the end. Now, if you go down, um, or back in this case, to chapter twelve and verse seven, we read this: "I heard the man clothed in linen, same angel by the way, who was above the waters of the river." when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time. Now, I think most of us will be aware of the fact that the time, times and half a time is that time period that that leads up to the time of the end. And remember, Daniel's book is to be sealed until the time of the end. This time period, time, times, and half a time, is actually presented in different ways. Do you remember some of these? It's presented as 1260 days. In another place, 42 months. In another place, a time, two times, and half a time, which would be three and a half times, which is exactly what um, is here. That 1260 prophetic days or years prior climaxes in 1798 And the time of the end begins. So you would expect from that that the book of Daniel would be unsealed after 1798. Uh, That's what he says would happen, sealed until the time of the end. Well, let's have a look at what it says about that over in Revelation chapter 12, folks, or chapter 10, actually. Let's go there. Please keep your other way, keep your hand. Sorry if you haven't already lost Daniel. Twelve. Keep your hand in Daniel 12, and we'll go across to Revelation chapter 10. Now, Revelation chapter 10, starting at verse 1, introduces a very interesting thing, and this is very important to us as Seventh-day Adventists with our emphasis on prophecy. Chapter 10 of Daniel, I'm sorry, chapter 10 of Revelation, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. If this sounds familiar, folks, it is meant to be. Go over, well, to me it's over the page, but still in chapter 10, could you have a look at verse, um, let me see, um, verse 5, verse, no, chapter 10, verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now, this is exactly what the angel did in his parting words to Daniel when he told him, seal up the book, and it's him who swears by him who lives forever and ever. With His In Daniel, he stands on the waters, and here he stands on the water and the land, indicating that he has moved down through time. And isn't it interesting This man appears to Daniel, this angel, sorry, appears to Daniel and we don't hear of him again for 600 years. And then he appears to John on the island of Patmos and says almost identical things except they are not identical because the thing that he really says that's so interesting is recorded in verse 2 of chapter 10 in Revelation and it says he had a little book open in his hand. Now, the connection between the book that was he was told Daniel was told to close by this same angel, and now he appears to John with a little book open, it's obvious that this is the book of Daniel. And it's really intriguing that he, um, he makes um, a statement too in verse 3. It says he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Daniel said he sounded like a, a great multitude of people. And here he sounds like a lion that roars. It's a loud voice. Why is it so loud? He's making a very important statement. So he's saying, get this. Don't miss this point. So now he's got a little book in his hand and it's opened. All right. Now we're going to do it. We're still in Revelation chapter 10. I would like it to go down to verse 8 because he gives John some instruction now. Verse 8. The voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, again, if you're familiar with this this prophecy, you'll know what this is referring to. Now verse 10, so John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So he had a sweet, bitter experience as he ate the book, the book of Daniel, and then what did he happen next? Verse 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's, sorry, verse 11, and he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So after this sweet, bitter experience, they were to prophesy again. Now, look, this is where we have to do a little bit of history, people, and go back to the man William Miller. Now, William Miller um, was um, a sceptic about the Bible and Christianity as a young man, um, but when he was... um, Uh, roughly, he must have been in his 30s, I think. Um, It was in 1815, 1816, he had a huge conversion experience and began to study the Bible. And in 1818, by 1818, just two years later, um, through his study of the Book of Daniel, he came to the conclusion that the second coming of Christ would occur within 25 years. He kept on studying his Bible, and by 1831, he began to preach now that Christ would come in 1843. Now, as you know, he made an adjustment, important adjustment to his, um, his understanding of the way the time period worked and finally came to the conclusion that Christ would appear on October 22, 1844. Now, he came to this conclusion. Now, people, I hope you're able to stay with me today. Now, are you not falling asleep, anybody? No, you're doing pretty well. Okay, good on you, Lynn. Okay, so please open your eyes We'll go back to Daniel chapter 8 now. Can you do that, please? Daniel 8, and, of course, verse 14. Daniel 8, verse 14, because this is the verse that, Dan, that uh, William Miller got stuck on, and he saw a tremendous amount of truth in this, Daniel 8, 14. And that's why he began to preach that Christ would come in October 22, 1844. In a moment, I want to deal with the specifics of that date and why it's so specific. We'll come back to that. Don't let me forget. Um, Verse 14 of Daniel 8 This is the angel said to me, Daniel, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed or justified. Um, An equally good word, even sometimes more helpful than cleansed, but the idea. It's the same, Uh, 2,300 days. Now, again, each day represents a year. This is 2,300-year prophecy, the longest time prophecy in the entire Bible. It's a very big one. Um, What time period of the earth's history would this refer to? Well, if we go down to verse 17, the angel goes on to say, he came near where I stood. This is Daniel writing, of course. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, and note these words, understand, son of man, the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, when did we discover the time of the end begins? 1798. So sometime after 1798, the 2,300-day vision pertains to that period of time. Sometime after 1798, which is really fascinating, isn't it? Now, as we know, this time period um, actually culminates and ends in October 22, 1844. And again, we don't have the time um, today to actually unpack that as to where we get to that date, but that's what they talked to you about, that one, Pastor Jeff. Um, But 1844, October 22, a very specific date. And again, it had to occur during the time at the end. It had to find its fulfilment there. And I think that that is so helpful and so interesting indeed. So we're greatly indebted to William Miller, who, of course, was a Baptist. No Seventh-day Adventist existed in those days, but there were Baptists, and this man was um, licensed as a Baptist preacher, preached this message, and it went around the world, which is pretty exciting. Um, I mentioned looking back at Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, I mentioned the fact that when it says the sanctuary shall be cleansed, it could just as easily be written justified. What does justified mean? Um, you needn't respond to that, but think about it. What does justified mean? If you are justified, and you are, when you come to Jesus, you accept him, confess your sins, make things right with him, you are justified Let's have that, that look at that word, that play on the word justified. It means just as if I'd never sinned. So, folks, when you're justified, you are declared to be without sin. Now, on the Day of Atonement, that's what happened to the sanctuary on earth. It was declared to be without sin at the close of the Day of Atonement. Now, at this point, we've got to go back to Leviticus chapter 23. So please, could you do that with me? Go back to Leviticus 23. Hope I'm not straining straining the cerebellum too much here, people. Back to Leviticus 23. We need to read this because it's so important that we get it clear in our mind. On the Day of Atonement, which was the most important spiritual event in the whole calendar year for the Israelite people, the Day of Atonement was the final event. This was symbolic of the Day of Judgment. Because on this day, they had to afflict their souls and search their own hearts. And by the way, we are living in the anti-typical day of atonement. And I think the message to us is exactly the same. Search your hearts, folks. Don't be ambivalent about your relationship with Jesus. Be strong about it. Okay, so we're in Leviticus chapter 23. And what's going to happen on the day of atonement? Well, if you look at chapter, not 23, sorry, chapter 16, Um, Got that wrong? Chapter 16. Can you please look at chapter 16 and we'll look at verse 33. Chapter 16, verse 33, it says, he shall make atonement. Now, when your sins are forgiven, the Bible says that that makes atonement for you. Jesus made atonement for you on the cross. Well, now, this is talking about an atonement of that religious spiritual building. He shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting, for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This, dear friends, is the Day of Atonement. Now, this is a very important event indeed. So on the Day of Atonement, he cleansed the the, the sanctuary of the sins of the people. Now, just very quickly, because most of us will know this, people would come. Believers would come to the sanctuary every day of the year, and they would come with their sacrifices. They would confess their sin. The priest who um, would minister to them personally, take some of the blood of their sacrifice into the sanctuary, sprinkle it in the sanctuary, thereby transferring the sins from the sinner to the sanctuary. Now, we all know what a sanctuary is, don't we? Um, Ducks know what a sanctuary is. They have ducks' sanctuary so that ducks know they can go to the sanctuary and they are safe. And, folks, the sanctuary is a place of safety for sinners from their sins. Do not be afraid of the thought that Jesus has the record of your sins, if you like. It's the record of your forgiven sins that are in the sanctuary. It does not mean that you're only partly forgiven. I want to make that very clear. Your sins are forgiven, all right, but they're on record. Why are they on record? Well, it's very simple. God takes nothing for granted. He doesn't want to take the universe for granted. Before he gives you and me the benefits of the glory land and eternity, he's going to help and allow the universe to see the books of records of your life and mine. And what they'll be looking for is not for your sins because that's a given. What they'll be looking for is to see if you have Jesus as your saviour. If you have a saviour, dear friends, you're at peace in the judgment. So what a wonderful thing that God has made atonement for us at the cross of Christ. Now, the day of atonement makes atonement as well. Atonement has many parts. Don't Don't let me give you the wrong idea here. I don't have time to go into that. If Pastor Jeff ever asked me to preach for you again, I might talk to you about the many aspects of atonement. The first being the sacrifice. And then it goes on from there. Well, if you knew and you were an Israelite that this was really important that you got it right on the day of atonement, um, you'd want the message that's also in chapter 16 of Leviticus. um, And it's uh, verse, let's see, verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls. Folks, they were not to be casual about their spiritual life at this point in time particularly. And the message to us, the sleepy church, is pretty apparent here. Afflict your souls. Do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. On that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you. And that's an interesting statement there. The word cleanse comes into the picture here. That you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest. So it was a very, very critical time. They were to examine their hearts. And I take that message seriously, very seriously, people. We're to do exactly the same thing. There's a bit of good news I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting some good news as well. In chapter 25 of Leviticus, and um, a couple of the verses there, it's very interesting to me to know that every 50th year on the Day of Atonement, they began the year of Jubilee. And if any of the great celebrations that Israel had there at the sanctuary, that gives us joy in our hearts, folks, it's the year of jubilee because that was the year of release from all of of their debts, all of their slavery. They received the inheritance of their land that may have been sold by their ancestors. And, folks, they look forward to a beautiful year and just like we look forward to an eternity of glory. Um, I'd like to read to you Chapter 25 then um, and Verse 8, it says, He shall count seven Sabbaths of years, 49 years, for yourself seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of year shall be to you 49 years. And then verse 9, then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall make the trumpet sound. So the Day of Atonement was to be completed. The sins of the people were to go off on the head of the scapegoat, And then on the Jubilee year, every 50th year. Now, bear in mind, you probably, if you were an Israelite, only ever saw this happen mostly once in your lifetime. And the symbolism of that is clear. Folks, when this happens, nothing else counts. When you hear the trumpet sound, when do we hear the trumpet sound? At the coming of Christ. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. What a wonderful time it's going to be. So the year of Jubilee followed the trumpet of the Day of Atonement and the trumpet sound, of course. And when the great events of the anti-typical Day of Atonement are complete, the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes. That doesn't move your heart. Nothing could. Wow. So I'm just looking forward to that. I just think it's so exciting to think about it. All right. Well, look. Um. I did promise that I would deal with why the the precise date for the judgment. How can God give us an exact date for something like that that occurs in heaven, this judgment occurs in heaven? October 22, 1844. Well, the reality is, people, that biblical time prophecies are specific by their very nature, very, very specific. You look at Jesus. Now, one of the things that locks 1844 in place as a date that is set in concrete for me is the fact that part of the 2,300 years is the 70 weeks prophecy that leads up to the first advent of Jesus. And that's already occurred. We know that Jesus came right on time, and that's the first part of the 2,300 years. So, folks, the time, 1844, is locked in place. Now, what did Jesus say when he began preaching and his public ministry? What were the first words that he spoke? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wasn't that fantastic? What time is he referring to? The 70 weeks of Daniel 9, the first part of the 2,300-year prophecy that ends in 1844. So, folks, Jesus made it clear. He said, the time has been fulfilled now. Listen to my message. And I think, wow, isn't that fantastic? Time prophecies are meant to be very specific. That's the way God designed it to be. All right. So going back now to Revelation chapter 10, can we do that? Are we still all awake? Look at you, people! You're remarkable. Revelation chapter 10. After the sweet, bitter experience. Now, what was that? Well, very quickly, uh, remember, William Miller preached that Jesus would come back the second time, October 22, 1844. Didn't happen. Because while his date was right, the event was wrong. The cleansing of the sanctuary, folks, was what we just looked at. The beginning of the judgment in heaven. Um, so they, those who believed that Jesus would come, went through a sweet experience as they anticipated the coming of Jesus and the arrival of the glory times, and then they had that bitter disappointment. So back in chapter ten, of Revelation, um, verse ten, um, Daniel, sorry, John. Um, symbolising, by the way, acting out the experience that the believers would have, says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. When I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Then following that, something else was to happen. Then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues and kings. A worldwide message, dear friends, he says, is to go out again. And of course, once more, it'll be based on the prophecies of the book of Daniel, and then of course, the book of Revelation as well. Now, we recognize that if you turn over a couple of pages in Revelation, you find the the actual message that we are to prophesy again about in chapter 14. And it's the three angels' messages there. Our message is symbolized by those three angels. Now, who qualifies? Who qualifies to take these messages? Well, in Revelation 14, verse 12, we'll read this one through. If you take out those Bibles, if you haven't, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, only people who can be described in this manner qualify to give this final message to the world. And I'm pretty pleased that God is very specific about who's to do the job. No one else need apply because it won't make sense to anybody else. But it makes a great deal of sense to those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, doesn't it? So that's pretty exciting to look forward to. Um, There's an interesting statement. I do want to refer to um, your reading for today, for the week of prayer. Um, On that First page what's well, actually page 3 right on the right hand side there's a statement by um, Ellen White there I'm going to read it because it's good In a special sense seventh day adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers we've got a job to do to them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world on them is shining wonderful light from the word of god they have been given a work of the most solemn import the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. Folks, the world's got to hear it. Think about it. You didn't know, um, and and someone else next door to you knows. I mean, we've got to tell the people. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. The world is to be warned, and God's people are to be true to the trust committed to them. Well, that's pretty, pretty clear to me. We've been given that job. All right, let's have a look at the message. Revelation chapter 14, and could you look at verse 6 where the message begins? I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Um, Then I saw, he begins it that way. In other words, it's a new scene, he's watching. This angel, he says, who symbolises giving this message, flying in the midst of heaven, Um, flying in the midst of heaven, the urgency of the message is here. He's flying and he's calling out the message as he goes and he's got the everlasting gospel to preach. We're going to come back to that the everlasting gospel and it's to go to every nation, tribe, tongue and people so that every nation under the under the sun, dear friends, is to hear this final message and it will. Everybody will. God will see to it. You can tell it's going to take a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit to do this. And I'm glad we have a a chance to be a part of that. Now, this is the major message, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God. Now, folks, um, fear God. Should we be frightened of God or we should be scared out of our wits? No, not at all. Um, This is a healthy reverence and awe of the Almighty that leads us to love and obedience to him. Um, That's what God is trying to say to us. Fear God and give him glory. That's what we're to do, give glory to God in the way we live our lives and the things that we say. And the reason for this, and it's unsurprisingly, a central part of the message of this final warning and invitation to the world is the hour of his judgment has come. Um, At the time this message is given, notice it's in the present tense. Already it has come. And um, we are to announce that particular message, so it fits exactly with the message of Daniel chapter eight and verse fourteen. By the way, it's the everlasting gospel. Um, it's everlasting, folks, in the sense that the message is unchanging. God's message does not change; it's the same message. And not only is that that it lasts for eternity, and those who accept it, well, what a wonderful time they're going to have! The everlasting gospel. But when you think about it, folks, the Protestant Reformation restored many truths to the world, but not all. Um, Much was lost during the dark ages of history, but God now is finally restoring those last essential truths. And we've just been reading some of them, fear God, give him glory, and the announcement that the hour of his judgment is come and we're to give glory to him. Um, Some have suggested that it's actually God who is being just judged here and not people. Um, God actually does have to be judged. In fact, he was judged. Does anybody know when God met his judgment? I'd like you to look at that with me. It's John chapter 12. Don't lose your place. I'm coming back there. But in John chapter 12, and let's see, John 12 and... Verse 31, John 12, 31, where are we here? Oh, yes, Jesus is talking. It's before his death on the cross, and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself, referring to his death. Um, now is the judgment of this world. Didn't I say this is how? this is where God is judged? Yes, it is. When the judgment of the world was placed on, dear friends, the heart and the life and the shoulders of the Son of God, God took responsibility for all of the great sins that the world has ever produced, and Jesus died for them there um, and died as guilty in order that you and I might be justified. What a wonderful thing it is that he did that for us. But no, there is to be a judgment, a judgment of the people of God, Um, Now, if there's a judgment, implies, doesn't it, examining the evidence. You've got to examine the evidence if you were to have a judgment. And uh, the Day of Atonement, of course, um, was specifically dealing with the people of God. How can we be sure the Day of Atonement in Israel only dealt with the people of God? Because it only dealt with the sins of the people who had confessed their sins and asked forgiveness. They were transferred into the sanctuary, and it was therefore the sins of the people of God that were dealt with in this judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, the time, he says, come, has come when judgment must first begin at the house of God. It begins with the people of God, according to Peter. Okay. And, of course, it, it climaxes with, according to Daniel, Judgment being delivered in favour of the saints. Now, still going back now to Revelation chapter 14, there's a couple more points I'd like us to deal with before we finish up today. Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to look here at, let's see, verse 7, verse 7, um, where it says, halfway through, the hour whose judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Folks, this is a quote from the, the fourth commandment dealing with the Sabbath, as we know. And how relevant is it, this call to worship God as the creator? Atheist, atheistic evolution is doing its best today to neutralise the everlasting gospel and to take it completely out of the way. You think what what atheistic evolution attempts to do. It attempts to remove God as creator. That's the obvious one. Once you do that, you remove God, our understanding of the great controversy, the conflict between God and the evil one. Um, you remove the truth about the fall of humanity into sin. There's an explanation for what is going on in the world today. You remove the need of a saviour. You remove the authority of God to nominate what is right and wrong, and by so doing, You remove the the authority of God to judge the world. And this is the bottom line. When I talk to people who take the view that um, there is no personal God, and I've got a few in my family like that, unfortunately, um, the whole notion of a judgment is nonsense to them. And you realise that they take that view because they don't want to come to terms with the fact that there is going to be a judgment. Talk about head in the sand. Um, It beats me how people can be so foolish, but they do. James tells us in Chapter 2 that the judgment is on the basis of the Ten Commandments. God makes it nice and simple for us and we can't go wrong with it. Well, here we are, right, at what appears to be a crisis time in the world, and it's an invitation to us to re-examine our hearts and our understanding of the message that God has given us. We've got the first message that we've looked at in detail here. Um, There's a second and third angel's message. The second message deals with the collapse of Babylon, um, human independence of God. The third message deals with a close, the final warning to the world and an appeal to accept the Lamb, the Lamb of God as their saviour. So we have that in our mind one of the things that i want to just read to you in closing as we look at the fact that we have the amazing three angels messages to share with the world and while we do that we recognize that as things become more critical in the world people are coming to decision time and i'm i'm very sad to think that some of our own people may be approaching those days this time and they're unprepared for it. And I'm going to read to you a very sobering statement by Mrs Whitewood. It's in page five of the reading for today, the last page, where she talks about a people who know the truth but are unprepared to meet the final crisis. This is what she writes. As the storm approaches, the bottom of the first column, by the way, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth. Now, underline those words in your mind, people. They have not been sanctified by obedience to the truth. That's simple. They abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. Now, we know we have to live in the world. You have to make a living. You've got to provide for your family, a roof over their head and so on, all of that. But, folks, we cannot partake of the spirit of the world. That is the danger, but be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy, popular side and become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. That's very sad. Um, Don't look at anybody else. Folks, we all have to look at ourselves. here. Could that be me? Could I be in that position? Um, Pray God it's not. Because the other side of it, let's look at the good news, the other side of that is another statement that's from Mrs White down um, in the middle of the second column where she describes the people of God who are faithful during this time, who seek God, who um, make their hearts right before him. It's fair, she says there, their faces will be lighted up, and you all probably know this statement, Hastening from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. The message will be carried not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. Folks, the Holy Spirit is our greatest need. When you're on your knees during this week of prayer, we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to transform our hearts, to put us on fire, to bring people into our pathway, Then God is leading to our truth. The truth. She goes on. The truth is seen in its clearness, and the honest children of God set for the bands which have held them. I like this statement. Notwithstanding the agencies combined against the truth, a large number take their stand upon the Lord's side. Did you get that? A large number join with the people of God and take their stand for Jesus and for his truth. And of course, for the Sabbath, possibly in the cost of all things. So, we're living in trying times and exciting times. Yes, these are not easy times. These are difficult times. And as Pastor Jeff said earlier, probably going to get more difficult. Um, but we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. Because, folks, remember what happened at the Day of Atonement. The service was completed, and the trumpet blasted, and the year of Jubilee was introduced. And we have the same hope before us. The glory land, dear friends, is not far ahead of us. What a wonderful day it will be. Praise God for the great and unspeakable gift of Jesus to make us lift up our heads and be filled with joy as we look forward to that day. And I am going to have a short prayer with you to close. Father, we thank you so much for these amazing prophecies. We've just scraped the surface of them today. But we realize, dear Lord, that we are in um, amazing times. We're in that great day of atonement, the antitypical day of atonement, when you are looking at the, and the universe is looking at the lives of your people, our lives. Lord, may we be hid under the, the blood of Jesus today. Pray that his blood will cover each one of us, that you'll wash us clean, forgive us completely of our sins, put your spirit deep in us so that we can live a sanctified life for you. And I pray, Lord, that you'll remember all of us when that trumpet blasts. Those who feel as though their faith is not up to the task today, they up to the test. Please, Lord, bless those people. You've given us some wonderful promises. We see the example of many. The man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Pray that you'll help those who struggle and help us to look to Jesus today. He who fulfilled prophecy in every step of his life, we can have confidence that he was, who he claimed to be. The time was fulfilled and Jesus came. The time is nearly fulfilled for him to come again. Keep us faithful until we see him in glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net. Oh, brother, be faithful,
2: soon Jesus will come. prove unfaithful to him who has shown such deep such unbounded and infinite love who died to redeem us his own O brother be faithful the city of gold prepared for the good and the blessed is waiting its portals of pearl to unfold And welcome thee into thy rest Then brother prove faithful not long shall we stay In weariness here and forlorn Time's dark night of sorrow is wearing away We haste to the glorious morn brother, be faithful, he soon will descend Creation's omnipotent king While legions of angels his chariot attend And wreaths of victory bring O brother, be faithful, and soon shalt thou hear Thy Savior pronounce the glad word Well done, faithful servant, thy title is clear To enter the joy of thy Lord O brother, be faithful, eternity's years Shall tell for thy faithfulness now When bright smiles of gladness shall scatter thy tears A coronet gleam on thy brow Oh brother, be faithful. The promise is sure that waits for the faithful and tried to reign with the ransom, immortal and pure, and ever with Jesus
1: abide. That was "Oh Brother, Be Faithful" by Fountain View Academy. Coming up next, Sandra Entman will sing. Wait well.
3: So you're stuck in the line at the grocery store with a million and one things, maybe some more that you've got to get done to meet a deadline. Do you stand there and curse or wait well? Then you get on the road and you find yourself stuck. Just ahead there's a learner Driving his truck and there's no chance to pass No alternative route Do you sit on his tail or wait where? And that friend that you're meeting You're gonna let down But you get there to find They're nowhere to be found Now they're holding you up It's time you don't have Do you pace up and down or wait where? You're following Christ Every chance that you get You share the Lord of your life But so many take so long To accept and believe Do you give up too soon Or wait well And there's some in your family Who are wearing you thin You have prayed every prayer You can send up to Him But you're not seeing change No improvements in sight Do you write them all off Oh wait well and the world's in a mess getting worse every day you find yourself wondering how long will he take there are so many suffering can he not see our plight do you question and doubt oh wait well Just be sure that you ask him to give you this thing, the endurance you need to wait well. Oh, be sure that you ask him for this very thing, the endurance you need, the endurance you need, the endurance you need to wait well.
0: Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. This story is entitled, A Most Unusual Case. My name is Shalom. I'm writing this many decades after the return to heaven of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I am a contemporary of Paul. He was a great missionary apostle who tragically met his end in Rome. He had gone there to appeal to Caesar of his innocence. We were in the rabbinical school at the same time that Gamaliel, the foremost Jewish scholar of his time, was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Saul, as he was known before his dramatic conversion, was an ultra-Orthodox Jew. Not only that, he took it upon himself with the support and approval of the Pharisees to persecute anyone who was known to be a believer in Christ. They were known as the Way. However, everything changed from Saul after his dramatic confrontation with the glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. Later, his name was changed from Saul to Paul. During the time Paul laboured long and hard for the Gospel, he completed three main missionary journeys. He also wrote many letters of counsel and encouragement to churches he had established. One of these was a little different, however, as it was a general letter entitled, The Epistle to the Hebrews. Some people believe that this letter was written by another person, but there is much to suggest that it was written by Paul. Why I'm mentioning this is that in this letter, Paul wrote at length about a man named Melchizedek, who was a contemporary of Abraham, the great father of our nation. Though Melchizedek was not one of our people, he was a significant person of his time. He was not only king of the city of Salem, which our ancestors later captured and renamed Jerusalem, but also priest of the Most High God, that is, our God, the great Creator and King of the universe. You may find it somewhat strange that someone out of the line of Abraham and not part of the Jewish people was a priest of God. However, in that era of the world and not many generations after the great flood, many people still believed in the true God and had not given their allegiance to the many false gods other people worshipped. Melchizedek was a most unusual case for two reasons. First, there is no record of his father or mother, or indeed of any of his ancestry, nor even of his descendants. This is surprising, as in those times, heads of family were always identified by it being known who were their forefathers and who were their descendants. Yet there was no record of these important facts for Melchizedek. Second, after a battle in which Abraham was involved and in which he had gained the victory, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek from the booty of the battle. This shows that Melchizedek was superior in rank and station in life than Abraham. Melchizedek also pronounced a blessing on Abraham or Abram as was his name then offering bread and wine as part of the blessing. Moses recorded this meeting in the Torah. Paul knew that Melchizedek was a priest of God. In his letter to the Hebrews, he used this man as a type of the ministry of Christ. Christ, being God, has no ancestor nor descendants. He was superior in every respect to the priests who had ministered in our nation down through the centuries ever since Aaron was called to this office by God himself. In respect to his sacrifice, Christ was offered only once, whereas human priests offered sacrifices on a continual basis as required. Another important point about Melchizedek was that he was priest of Salem. When our ancestors left their wilderness wanderings and entered the promised land, God said that there would be a place where he would make his presence known to his people. Many years later, Jerusalem became that place, the very place where Melchizedek had ministered hundreds of years before. Therefore, it is not surprising that Paul referred to this significant man as a type of the Saviour of the world, who would come many centuries later. Not only that, but David in his 110th Psalm, when referring to his Lord, said, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. I never cease to count my blessings, for having lived at the time when the Messiah came into the world through the Jewish nation. While many may not have accepted him, many have. I have lived long enough to see the good news spread far and wide throughout the Roman Empire. In time it will spread to other places around the world. People will come to know and love the one, Who has no beginning and will have no end. He is our eternal, our everlasting God and wonderful Saviour. So ends the story. I now have a quiz for you. The answers are found in the story. Who was Gamaliel? What was Melchizedek's father's name? Did Paul meet Melchizedek? What work? did Melchizedek do? Where did Melchizedek live? And what did Abraham give Melchizedek? You've been listening to God's Favored Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.
2: This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.